you make that sound like it's an easy question. Like, this is the starter question, but it's actually very hard. So that's a good question. I think uh, free will is... Free will is... Free will, I think, is... Uh, what free will is is actually a pretty complicated question. So what is free will? Hello, this is Free Will Matters. My name is Santiago Amaya, and I'm an associate professor in philosophy at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. I am the host of this podcast. Hi, I'm Manuel Vargas, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. I am also the host of this podcast. The human ability to decide and act freely requires that we think of ourselves as agents of a particular kind. We must have the ability to form intentions, to deliberate, to exercise self-control, plan for the future, and so on. At the same time, we are creatures bound by the context and the circumstances that we occupy. What kind of agents then are we? How is our agency shaped by the world in which we live? For this season, our guests will be distinguished authors and researchers working on the philosophy of agency. The philosophy of agency can be a daunting endeavor, but with their help, we will get to know better the what, the how, and the why of our agency. Welcome. For today's episode, our guest is Michael Inslicht. Michael is a research excellence faculty scholar at the University of Toronto with appointments in the Department of Psychology and in the Rotman School of Management. He's published more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters, and he's edited two books. His work has been featured in media outlets around the world, including the New York Times, The Globe, Mail, BBC News, Time, The Daily Telegraph, and the CBC, among many others. Michael is also co-host of the world-famous podcast, Two Psychologists and Four Beers. Uh, world famous is uh, uh, quite an accomplishment, but I'll take it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Nice to have you here, Michael. So, Michael, you have worked on a number of different topics, and these include prejudice, academic performance, mindfulness, cognitive control. But self-control has been one of the topics figuring prominently in your research. Can you tell us what self-control is and what makes it special? Yes, self-control can be, uh, there are many definitions of self-control, but I think one definition that I've used is uh, a mental process of advancing one goal when there might be another goal or multiple other goals that come into conflict with a any one goal. So you, for example, might have the goal of doing well on your exams. Now, how do you bring that goal about? How do you actually act in accordance with that goal, especially when there might be other demands on your time, other goals that you might have? For example, you might have a goal of spending time with your children or spending time with your partner, uh, and that could come into conflict with your doing well in school goal. So what mediates the process of arbitrating between your various goals would be something called self-control. Uh, there's a related concept uh, uh, that refers to uh, self-regulation, and you can think of self-regulation as a broader concept, a concept that not only includes self-control, but includes also the setting of goals, the monitoring of goals, and um, come in enacting behaviors to, um, to reach those goals, even when there is no conflict. So uh, what's special about uh, self-control is that it typically involves conflict and the resolution of conflict, and that's what you need self-control for, is to resolve those conflicts. 
exercising self-control is typically pictured as an effortful endeavor. Uh, but you've argued that self-control might not actually be effortful, or at least that sometimes we can do it without a whole lot of effort involved. So can you tell us a little bit about this idea? Yeah, I'm going to tell you about it, but I'm going to I'm going to push back a little bit on the premise of your question. So there are people who uh, suggest that self-control can be effortless. Uh, I'm not sure I'm one of them. Uh, I think self-control, given my definition of self-control, which is you know the biasing of one behavior over another when it comes when there, when there are goals that come into conflict, I think my definition of self-control does require some at least a little bit of effort to resolve the conflicts. Now, there's a related concept that I just referred to called self-regulation. I think self regulation can be effortless. And in fact, I believe that most of the ways in which we accomplish our goals happen through the self-regulatory route by setting a goal, planning for the goal, strategizing for how to bring the goal about. And that can happen uh, quite efficiently without there being conflict whatsoever. And in fact, one line of, uh, of research that I have suggests that anytime you face conflict, you're already doomed. Uh, if, if you need to bring about self-control, you're likely not to, you're likely to fail. Uh, so it's better to find other ways, uh, ways that don't involve self-control, uh, for example, um, just setting a, a simple goal. Um, so I think um, we need to think more carefully about how we try to bring our goals about. And we don't always need to go the effortful self-control route. Can you tell us a little bit about the evidence or the considerations that drive this view about uh, we're necessarily doomed or, or almost certainly doomed if it turns out we're having to rely on, on self-control? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, th this notion that self-control might not be as good as we think, or that we're doomed once we face conflict, I think it's a relatively new idea, in the, at least in the psychology of, of self-regulation. I think for a long time, we gave a lot of weight to and importance to self-control, this resolution of conflict. But uh, there's increasing amounts of evidence suggesting that maybe that is not the best route. So for example, I've got one study with a former student of mine, Marina Milievskaya, where we had people nominate goals that they consider to be important. So that could be the goal of learning a new language, a goal of losing weight, a goal of getting an A in a class. These are these are college students. And then we tracked them for, for a number of months. And then we also observed them in their daily lives. I observe, I mean, we had them report on their, on their thoughts and behaviors in their daily lives. And what we found was that people often had many desires during the course of their days. Some of those desires conflicted with the various goals that they nominated. And as we'd expect, there's, all, we, there's lots of goal competition. We're multi-goal organisms. And sometimes people, when they face conflict, they, in fact, regulated that conflict. They tried to control one, you know, their behavior to enact one goal versus another goal. And while they might have been successful in the moment of regulating their behavior, whether they enacted self-control in the moment had no impact on whether they accomplished their goal later on, three months later on. So, for example, if you had the goal of learning Spanish and you faced a temptation to not speak Spanish, maybe you're speaking to a bilingual person who, who switches on you and speaks English with you, and that's a temptation, and you can just easily switch, you might fight that temptation to, to, to switch. Um, and, you know, perseverate and no, I'm going to speak Spanish right now, but the extent to which you do it won't actually determine whether you speak Spanish well or how much progress you make on your Spanish learning goal three months later. It turns out that what is more critical is whether you face temptation to begin with. So whether you face situ many situations where there are people who switch on you. 
uh, in this example that I just gave, that'll lead you to probably, that'll lead to an undermining of your goal. So it turns out that self-control is probably not that important, but other things are. So how you how you relate to your own goals, whether you find um, your goals, uh, you know, intrinsically motivating or something you force yourself to do, that might be more critical. There's other lines of evidence as well, but that's just one line, one bit of evidence in support of this of this notion. You mentioned one way of measuring self-control that has to do with self-reports. And I want to ask two questions in relation to that. One is, how do we know that self-reports are a good measure of self-control? And two, what are other ways of measuring self-control? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. The measurement uh, uh, question is a really, really important one. Well, I mean, how do we know it's a good measure? Um, I mean, the the validation of self-report measures, of all measures, in fact, is an ongoing and never-ending process. You can never really determine for certain that it's a good proxy of it. But over time, we collect evidence and we notice patterns of association such that, uh, you know, this thing that we measure when we ask people to report on their self-control, it correlates with things as we'd expect, they, they, they conform to our theories of self-control and they kind of, they correlate with some things and they don't correlate with other things in a manner that, 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 we, we, that we care about. So that's the validity question. There's also a reliability question. Can we measure this thing? And is it stable over time? So just like when I get on a bathroom scale to measure my weight, you know, more or less, that's, you know, a, a stable measurement. If I measure now and then in five minutes, it'll more or less give me the same weight with a little bit of error. And we demand the same thing of our self-report tools. So, but it's not perfect. Uh, it might not capture all the variants that we expect. So there, there need to be other uh, uh, ways of measuring any construct, including self-control. Another, another way of measuring it are tasks, behavioral tasks. So cognitive psychologists are really specialists at creating tasks that capture um, a construct in the lab. So for example, there are many tasks that tap at so-called executive function or cognitive control. And these are tasks where uh, a participant will be exposed to a, a type of conflict, a cognitive conflict. So a very, very fa famous task, one of the more famous tasks uh, that psychologists have created is something called the Stroop task, where people are given literally color words, the word ye yellow, blue, red, and green. And people need to name the color in which these color words are printed. Now, the key is that the words themselves, not only are they semantically read, you know, a color word, they're also printed in various color words. And sometimes you can have the, the actual color and the semantic meaning of the word to conflict. And when that happens, you need to regulate your behavior because you've got two prepotent or dominant responses to read the word, to name the color of the word. And in order to do well on that task, you need to regulate your attention. So it's another way that we can capture cognitive control or self-control in the lab. But the same uh, requirements of validation are needed for behavioral tasks as well. They need to be reliable. So if I measure a stroop on a person at one point in time, it should be associated with how they do 10 minutes later, a week later, and uh, the pattern of associations with what it correlates with in terms of other constructs should also be conformed to theory. And this is where behavioral tasks don't actually do well. Uh, they, they aren't as reliable as we'd like them to be, and they aren't as valid as we, we, we expected them to be. So we're in a bit of conundrum now, and this is something that's kind of been revealed in the past few years, that the, the, these rock-solid things that we thought were measuring control, ooh, maybe not. Maybe they're measuring something else. Maybe they're not related to control, or maybe they're not a, a reliable measure to begin with. We should be using them at least to assess individual differences. I want to ask you a question about that last point. So 
So I take it that distraction and temptation are two different things. So I was wondering how can you distinguish those two things in an experimental setting? That is to say, how do you get people to get tempted versus distracted by, say, irrelevant aspects of a stimulus? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So, these, you know, this question is really good because it gets at the heart of the problem of creating lab tasks, right? So what we're, what we're trying to do with these tasks is model something that happens in the real world. So one of the, this is one example, a very common example of the food example. I've got a goal of losing weight or restricting my, my, my food intake of certain bad, let's say, high sugar and, and fatty foods. Well, every time I walk you know, down the street in my neighborhood, I've got constant temptations from bakeries, from restaurants, from convenience stores that tempt me with their wares. And then I need some sort of force to, to, to push back against these desires. Now, how do we model that in a lab? Um, is a task where we ask people to read words or to name colors, is that appropriately model that sort of temptation? One could argue that the temptation to read a word instead of naming a color, it's, it's a kind of temptation, but typically cognitive psychologists don't talk about that as a temptation. They might talk about it as you did as a distraction, or they might talk about it as an habitual response that becomes that's very strong and salient and wants to be enacted. But uh, an habitual response or something that's distracting is quite different phenomenologically from a temptation. In many instances, we've assumed that they map onto one another, but they might not. So that's a problem. So, but there are other tasks that, that we can create in the lab. So for example, there is a, 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 a task pioneered by a, a neuroeconomists, which is like a food choice task where people come into the lab and they're hungry and they haven't eaten, they fasted for four hours. And then you show them pictures of foods and they have to decide between uh, the, these, these foods and these choices are consequential. They'll be given one of their choices. So they might be shown a, a plate of broccoli or a photo of a plate of broccoli and then a, a photo of uh, potato chips. And they're asked, what do you want to eat right now? Um, and they say uh, potato chips. And then after the experiment, they'll indeed be given one of their choices. So it's a consequential choice for them. Now here, one could argue that um, temptation is modeled much more readily. And there, the, the, the choice that people make uh, will be in fact more critical. Um, so I would argue there that, you know, um, that uh, uh, they're doing a better job of uh, modeling uh, temptation and modeling self-control. So this is a question about self-control in some sense in, in, in its mythologies. So uh, the, the term in kind of everyday discourse uh, shows up in, in, in concerns about morality, in politics, in things like child rearing. So, you know, as a parent, parents will talk about like, I, I really want my kid to develop self-control. Or, you know, we look at, at people who are overweight, uh, like I look in the mirror and I see myself and it's like, Manuel, you know, like get a grip. Or, you know, uh, the talk in cases about people making poor economic choices, it looks like a failure of self-control is one of the narratives we have. Uh, and so there, there's just a, a range of these places in our everyday cultural morality politics where, where we really talk a lot about the importance of self-control and it figures enormously in our, our, our local cultural mythologies in various ways in pop culture. So this is a question really about what are the biggest myths there from, uh, from the standpoint of a, of a psychologist who studies self-control in the lab and who thinks about these things from the standpoint of uh, psychological constructs how should we think about uh, how should we think about what the biggest myths are about self-control, whether as a, as a popular cultural conception and then also within the field of, of psychology itself? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I think we're seeing more and more 
um, this pop up, the myth of self-control, or I've got a paper or commentary, I should say, co- uh, you know, called um, willpower is overrated. And I think the reason, I, you know, I've argued that and, and more and more people are arguing this is because self-control or willpower is kind of maybe a colloquial ex- expression for self-control might not work as, as well as we think in terms of helping us reach our goals. So I already described a study that, uh, you know, kind of shows that, that in fact, uh, the extent to which you control your, your impulse doesn't necessarily predict whether you reach your goals three months later. That's one bit of evidence. Another, for me, very, uh, very convincing evidence is that if you actually look at the people who are most successful in life, the people who seem to be meeting their goals, the people who are able to regulate, uh, uh, sorry, who are conscientious, and sometimes we call them people who are high in trait self-control. So we use that term self-control there, although that might be a misnomer. We find that they actually don't use self-control very often. They use something else. So if you actually monitor them on, on a daily basis, they are not engaging in, they're not restricting themselves. They're not restraining themselves. They're not pushing things away. They're not like using muscular forms of self-control. They're doing something else. And in fact, it's the people who are, the least successful who are using self-control. And you can think of self-control in this regard as um, an emergency break. It's like when, when when there's a crisis, when I'm facing temptation, that's when self-control comes online, or at least it's thought to come online. And that's already like, if you're using the emergency break, it's a good chance you're going to crash. So that's kind of what, what we're seeing with self-control. But the people who are successful, who seem to be you know uh, meeting their goals, they're doing something else to meet their goals. It doesn't seem to be the case that they're engaging in what we might call reactive self-control or, or you know, kind of last, you know, uh, in the moment self control. They seem to be doing other things. They seem to be planning. They seem to be setting goals. They seem to be kind of um, um, planning for what what negative things might happen and then kind of planning how to overcome those things. So really, in terms of mythology, we should kind of maybe think less about this kind of Superman willpower, uh, muscular form of self-control, and then instead think about how can I create strategies to help bring self, uh, my goals about? How can I structure my days so that I work slowly on my goals and, and inculcate good habits? Um, and that's very different than kind of, I'm just going to resist. There's going to be a, you know, a wall of food around me and I'm hungry and I'm on a diet and I'm just going to resist through sheer willpower. No, you're going to find that you might be able to resist for a few minutes, a few hours, maybe even a few days, but at some point you will, you will not be able to anymore. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're drunk. Maybe you're stressed out. Maybe you've had a bad day. Maybe you've had a good day and you need to celebrate. There are all these different things that kind of undermine resistance. So if, if you're resisting something, you're probably not structuring your goals as, as optimally as you could. So um, these are the strands of thinking that, you know, kind of mythologize and lead kind of lead us to kind of overvalue, I think, willpower and self-control. The other thing, and maybe we'll get this later, I'm not sure, um, is that when we think of self-control kind of more breaking it down into its component parts, it ends up being maybe perhaps not that different from, you know, old fashioned intelligence. You know, people were intelligent, they set goals, they make plans for their goals, they're they're quickly able to uh, to react to when things go awry. There might be more overlap with with, with self-control and intelligence than we previously thought. Um, So these are all the kind of various ways that self-control might be kind of overplayed, overrated, and there could be alternative ways of of bringing our goals about. So is this fair as an encapsulation of the Inselict Parenting Manual 
Uh, one, be an Aristotelian, go for habituation over time. You want to just uh, have good habits. And two, be a Bratmanian. That is, you want to spend a lot of time planning for contingencies. And if you do those two things, uh, you're going to do better trying to raise your kids doing that than you will be by trying to uh, yell at them to get some self-control. Um, I mean, that, that, that sounds uh, more or less correct. So I think you want to inculcate values and goals. So you want your kids to have good goals or goals that are societally rewarded, uh, that, that align with your own morality, um, but also in the goals you want to accomplish for your kids. Um, and then um, you're planning to, to have those things come through. But part of the valuing, uh, which you know maybe self-control slips in here a little bit, is valuing effort is valuing hard work. And self-control, again, is thought of uh, as, as an effortful process to kind of downregulate or to kind of bias one goal over another. And that is effortful, that you know, difficult mentally and sometimes even physically. And we typically don't like effort. We shy away from effort. Uh, psychologists in the 1920s coined the law of least work. You know, all else being equal, organisms, you know, humans and other animals, prefer to work less hard than more hard for the same rewards. Um, but that uh, the, the love of work can be taught and inculcated culturally, but also individually. So you can kind of smuggle in self-control in there by valuing hard work, but that just means working hard towards your goals, whether they, you know, whether, you know, that work is, uh, involved in restraining yourself, which I, I've argued is maybe not so, maybe not such a great strategy, but also just in kind of, uh, even if you don't have to, even if you don't have to struggle against another temptation, working on your goals uh, can sometimes be boring and difficult. And, and if you kind of value that, if you value goals, value hard work, you know, you might kind of scaffold that as well. So one last question, Mickey. Can you recommend two beers to those listeners who might want to have a drink as they listen to our podcast? Oh yes, that's a great question. Um, well, so I'm really, really into uh, to craft beers, and typically, typically, craft beers are very, very local. So you can only buy them in your your local area. Um, so I'll recommend. So I'm 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 talking to you from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And my two two favorite brewery breweries are just local, and you can't buy these beers anywhere else outside of uh, maybe Southern Ontario. Um, so one is called Collective Arts. It's a brewery outside of uh, inside of Hamilton, Ontario, and they've got a, a wide selection of of uh, IPAs, which I I typically really really enjoy. They have a series that are just numbers, so number fourteen IPA number fourteen I really like. And then another one is from. Actually, I'll switch up. I, I was going to recommend something uh, from uh, Bellwood Brewery, which is also very, very local. But I'm going to switch up to probably my favorite brewery in the world. This comes out of um, Chambly, Quebec uh, in Canada. And, um, and that is a Unibrew brewery. And they've got, um, they, they're now a bigger brewery. You can find their beers all over. But they make fantastic beers, Belgian-style beers. One that I like quite a bit is called um, Modit. Uh, which is also a, actually, it's a curse word in, in uh, a Quebecois French slang. Um, and it's a delicious beer, quite strong, um, but, but it, yeah, it's fantastic. You can't go wrong with anything from Unibrew. So I highly recommend uh, Unibrew and, and you, that is widely available. Well, thank you for those recommendations and thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to one day drinking beers with, with all of you. Hopefully it will be soon. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Free Will Matters is part of the LATAM Free Will Agency and Responsibility Project. 
It is produced by Cero Setenta, thanks to a generous grant of the John Templeton Foundation, and with the support of Universidad de los Andes and the University of California in San Diego. For more information, visit us at freewill.uniandes.edu.co. That is freewill.uniandes.edu.co. 